I'm not a big fan of doctors. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm grateful for what they do. I'm just not sure I can tell them my problems. Now, I come by it honestly. Um, I still remember about 20 years ago seeing a doctor about my voice problems, which I'm still having 20 years later. And the doctor told me, the problem is, young man, that you are trying too hard to be masculine. And I never saw that doctor again. I still remember at age 30, uh, suffering from some pretty painful blood clots in my leg. And I wasn't able to walk. I actually had to be pushed in in a wheelchair into the hospital, and the doctors ran all these tests, did all these sorts of things, and at some point after I explained the excruciating pain that I was in, the doctor looked at me and he said, you know, I've looked at everything, this really shouldn't hurt at all. Okay. The most recent time was earlier this year, I was in excruciating pain one evening, I thought I had kidney stones. And I thought I would just wait it out through the night, but Holly insisted that my friend Eric would take me to the hospital, and so he did. And I sat down with the doctor in the ER, and I started to tell him about my medical condition. It turns out it wasn't kidney stones. I have a condition called polycystic kidney disease. So my kidneys are filled with cysts, and my, the cysts in my kidneys were popping, and it created this excruciating pain. And I'm talking with the doctors about what's going on, and the doctor asks me, so, how long have you had polycystic ovaries? <laughs> Don't have those. Uh, I, I guess I shouldn't complain. Uh, for the most part, doctors have taken care of my physical issues. I just can't get past their bedside manner. I wonder how many of us feel that way about Jesus. Now, we know Jesus is the great physician. And we know we can trust Him with the results. But can we trust His bedside manner? If you've been walking alongside us over the past year through the Gospel of Matthew, we have seen case after case of the great physician treating his patients. And oh my goodness, we have seen this Jesus treat the leper and the, the feverish and the blind and the lame with incredible dignity and gentleness. But what if the sickness that you have, that you need to talk to Jesus about, is something different? What if your ailment is not physical, but spiritual? What if you're struggling, suffering from something far more personal and painful? Can you trust the great physician then? Can you trust Jesus to care for a spiritual pain like doubt? I want you to turn in your Bibles, if you're not already there, to Matthew chapter 11, verse 2. Matthew chapter 11, verse 2. 
In Matthew chapter 10, we watched as Jesus sent out his disciples on a short-term mission trip. And meanwhile, as uh, Jesus is preparing his disciples to go, somewhere behind the scenes, a character that we first met back in chapter 3, a guy named John the Baptist, has been arrested, thrown into prison. And Jesus after his disciples go out, is confronted again by John the Baptist. This time, John isn't able to talk to Jesus. So John, languishing in Herod's prison, sends word to Jesus. You see, John is wrestling with doubt. If you remember the story of John, you remember that it was John who was this miracle baby. His parents, Zechariah and Elizabeth, were elderly, unable to conceive until an angel comes to them and says, you're going to have a baby, and he is going to be the one that turns children's hearts to their fathers and fathers to their children. He's going to be the one who comes in the spirit of Elijah. He's going to be the one that prepares the way of the Lord. And for 30 years, John probably heard those stories, and he read the prophecies of the Messiah and there on the banks of the Jordan River, he preaches that there is coming someone who's going to baptize not with water, but with fire. The Messiah's coming. And John sees him and he says, behold the Lamb of God. And Jesus comes to be baptized and John says, I can't do it. I'm not even worthy to tie your shoes. Jesus is baptized, and John hears the voice from heaven, and something happens. John is thrown in prison, and things don't work out the way he expected. See, as John read the prophecies of the Messiah that was to come, he was confident that the Messiah would come and bring judgment against the enemies of God. He even said, behold, the axe is at the roots of the trees. Judgment is coming. It's here. It's coming in Jesus. And now here he is, and he's hearing stories that Jesus is telling people to love their enemies. What? And John himself is imprisoned by the very enemies that Jesus is supposed to deliver him from. And all of a sudden, the doubts begin to swell in John's soul. Can we trust Jesus with our doubts? The big idea I hope to convince you of from our text this morning is that Jesus gently cares for doubting disciples. Jesus gently cares for doubting disciples. If you're in this room and you're a doubting disciple, this is incredibly good news for you. Because the same care that Jesus shows to John the Baptist in our text this morning, he shows to every single one of his saints. So take heart this morning from God's Word. If you're in this room and you're a Christian dealing with doubting disciples, 
you have in your life some doubters. They're followers of Jesus, but they struggle. Maybe it's your husband or your wife or your son or your daughter. Maybe it's a dear friend. Maybe it's someone in your fellowship group, and you just want them to kind of get over their doubts and believe already. I hope you'll see in this text a model of how better to care for doubting disciples. And perhaps there are some in this room, you might call yourself a doubter, but you're not a believer in Jesus Christ. You're not a Christian. I hope to show you as we move along that your problem isn't doubt. Not really. Your problem is unbelief. Those are two very different things. And I hope to point you to faith in Jesus Christ. So from our text this morning, with God's help, let's consider four ways that Jesus gently cares for doubting disciples. Number one, Jesus listens. Jesus listens to doubting disciples. Look with me beginning in verse 2. Now when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples, and he said to him, are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? Now, what's insightful to me in those verses is what Jesus doesn't do. He doesn't say, are you kidding me, John? I mean, you heard the voice of the Father when I was baptized. You're the one that said, behold, the Lamb of God. You're the one that said, he must increase and I must decrease. What's the problem, bro? Jesus doesn't respond that way. Jesus is not shocked or ashamed of his doubting disciple. He listens. Just as a point of application, brothers and sisters in this room, we shouldn't be shocked or ashamed of doubting disciples either. We should listen to them. How would you respond if someone in your fellowship group or Sunday school class or discipleship group openly shared with you about their doubts when it comes to following Jesus. Would you listen to them? Would you respond with a smug sort of, well, I just don't doubt at all. Would you respond with a trite, you just got to believe. Would you listen to them? Jesus listens to John. One of the reasons I think why we respond so poorly often to doubters is because we've confused unbelief and doubt. They're not the same thing. So Alistair McGrath, theologian, says this, unbelief is the decision to live your life as if there is no God. It's a deliberate decision to reject Jesus Christ and all that he stands for. But doubt is something quite different. Doubt arises within the context of faith. It is a wistful longing to be sure of the things in which we trust, end quote. Get that? Unbelief, decision to live like God doesn't exist. That might be someone in this room that's not a Christian. You're living as if he doesn't exist. That's unbelief. Doubt is something different. Doubt is saying, I just want to be sure, but I'm going to live like it's true. Very different things. 
In a sermon on this text, John MacArthur said, when the New Testament talks about doubt, it primarily focuses on believers. It's as if you have to believe something before you can doubt it. You have to be committed to it before you would begin to question it. So that doubt is the unique problem of the believer. That's why I said, if you're doubting this morning and you're not a Christian, your problem really isn't doubt, it's unbelief. Or J.C. Ryle great Anglican bishop said, doubting does not prove that a man has no faith, but only that his faith is small. And even when our faith is small, the Lord is ready to help us. So let us labor to listen to doubting disciples like Jesus did. Jude chapter, or Jude verse 22 makes this a command for us when it says, have mercy on those who doubt. Have mercy on them. What does it look like to have mercy on a doubting disciple? First, it means to listen to them. To listen. And not push them away. Not reject them. Not say, I can't handle questions like that. But to listen. If you're in this room and you're a doubter, you're struggling with doubt, perhaps even right now. Let me urge you, you need to open up about your doubts. You need to. What I love about John the Baptist in our text is that he brings his doubts to Jesus. And so should we. You need to talk to Jesus about your doubts. Perhaps the worst thing that you can do about your doubts is put on a good Christian mask and act like they don't exist. You will help no one, least of all yourself. I think doubters need to take it one step further. Since John is in prison, Jesus is out doing ministry, John doesn't have physical access to Jesus. He can't physically go to Jesus. He's locked up in a dungeon. So he brings his doubt to Jesus by first opening up about those doubts to one of his friends. You know, I think for some of us in this room that wrestle with doubt, it might be relatively easy for you to talk to Jesus about your doubt. You might believe he's gentle and lowly of heart, as this chapter will later teach us. So I can talk to Jesus about my doubt, but I certainly can't talk to anybody else. Praying about it and not telling anybody else may not help you work through those doubts, Christian. Without the gift of Christian fellowship, you may find yourself telling Jesus about your doubts and then thinking about your doubts and then worrying about your doubts and then spiraling further and further and further out of control. You need to talk to people about your doubts. Alistair McGrath is helpful again here. He says, we need to learn to be relaxed about doubt. Doubt is like an attention-seeking child. The more attention you pay to it, the more attention it demands. By worrying about your doubts, you get locked into a vicious cycle of uncertainty. One of the best ways to break that cycle is by shedding light on it. Sin, in all of its forms, is a lot like a cockroach. It doesn't like the light. I'm sorry, my watch is talking to me. Sorry about that. Honesty heals. Secrecy 
kills. It's true with any number of sins. As we bring it into the light, that's where healing begins. So if you're in this room again and you're wrestling with doubt, let me give you a really practical application for you this week. Talk to other Christians about your doubt. If you're in a fellowship group, create some time this week, fellowship group leaders, to talk about our doubts. And if you are one of those who happens to be blessed with very little struggles with doubt, make sure you listen as Jesus did. I think it would help us before we move on for a moment um, to pause and consider why John is doubting. I think if we do so, it might help us to understand some of the reasons why we doubt today. And in his commentary on this text, David Platt suggests three reasons why we doubt. The first is difficult situations. It's true, isn't it? You're more prone to doubt when life is hard. Think about the great prophet Elijah in 1 Kings 19. He's running from Jezebel. He's ready to give up. And he asks God to take his life because he feels like he's the only follower of God left. When life is difficult, it's easier to doubt, isn't it? So too with John the Baptist here. He's in prison. He's probably hungry. He's probably tired. He's probably sore. He's probably lonely. So too, when difficulties arise in your life, whether they're physical or spiritual or financial or emotional or relational, as difficulties rise, so often too do doubts. Another reason we often doubt is unmet expectations. You are more prone to doubt when your expectations aren't met. So again, think of Elijah, that great prophet in the Old Testament. He, he has a literal mountaintop experience in 1 Kings 18. You remember the story? The prophets of Baal and Elijah, this great big showdown. He builds this altar. He soaks it with water, and God responds to his prayer and ignites it. It's incredible, incredible story. Right after that comes 1 Kings 19, where Elijah is so discouraged and weighed down by doubt, he literally asks God to kill him. Why? I think that Elijah expected after that great moment in 1 Kings 18 that God was going to completely win the day, that all of his enemies would be destroyed, and there would be a new reign of happiness and peace and prosperity for the people of God. But the next day, Jezebel's still on the throne with Ahab, and she says, I'm killing you, Elijah. Unmet expectations. So too with John the Baptist. I alluded to this earlier. John is expecting that Jesus will come and bring judgment. Now, Jesus is going to bring judgment, but not in the way that John expects. Jesus is going to bring judgment by actually receiving the wrath of God for sin on himself. John doesn't understand that yet. John believes that Jesus will come and wipe out the enemies of God. But Jesus has come to be wiped out himself. Unmet expectations often lead to doubt. And then there's limited perception. 
We're more prone to doubt, aren't we, when we can't see clearly? When you really can't see, when life feels like a fog, it's easy to doubt. Again, consider Elijah doubting God's power because he believes that he's a true follower of God and he's the only one left. And so in 1 Kings 19, God shows Elijah there are 7,000 who have yet to bow the knee to Baal. Elijah was wrong. He thought he could see, but he couldn't. And so too with John the Baptist. He thinks that he can see the full picture. He thinks he understands. But what John didn't understand is that there would be not one coming of the Messiah, but two And in the first coming of Messiah, he would come to receive judgment on himself. And in the second coming, he would come to execute God's judgment on unbelievers. John didn't understand that. He had limited perception. I remember back in 2016, in a great season of doubt, a dear friend of mine, one of our supported missionaries said to me, when you can't see very far, go as far as you can see. Often, limited perception leads to great doubt. Whatever the reason for your doubt this morning, believer, you can bring your doubts to Jesus because he gently cares for doubting disciples by listening to them. We need more than that. We need something more than just a cosmic therapist, you know, who kind of just tell me all your problems, vent it all out, and you'll be better. Jesus is going to do more than that. Jesus doesn't just listen to us. Number two, Jesus speaks the doubting disciples. He speaks to us. Look at verse four. And Jesus answered them, John's disciples, go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear and the dead are raised up And the poor have good news preached to them. Now, at first glance, Jesus' words might not seem like much. But there's more going on here than meets the eye. Remember, John is doubting if Jesus is really the promised Messiah. Once he was quite confident... John was willing to risk his reputation on the identity of Jesus, but now he's rotting in Herod's prison cell, and he's beginning to doubt. He's doubting, is Jesus really the Christ? Are you the one, or should we look for somebody else? But rather than directly answering John's question, Jesus takes John to the Scriptures. In those verses that I just read from Matthew 11, Jesus alludes to several prophecies about the Messiah that John the Baptist surely would have known. For example, Isaiah chapter 35, verses 4 to 6, says, Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. And then, when God comes, then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. And shall the, then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy, for waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. Does that sound familiar to Matthew 11? By the way... 
We talked about this a couple of months ago, I think. There's all sorts of miracles and healings all throughout the scriptures, but never until Jesus was there anybody that gave sight to the blind. Jesus says, tell John the blind can see. John's asking, is he really the Messiah? Jesus goes back to a messianic prophecy in Isaiah 35, and he says, tell John what you've seen. There's another prophecy that Jesus alludes to in this text in Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn. Once again, you see the illusion. Good news to the poor. Jesus says, tell John the poor of good news preached to them. Clearly alluding back to Isaiah 61. Now here's the challenging part. Jesus is clearly fulfilling part of these prophecies. Yeah, the blind can see, the lame can walk, the poor are getting good news preached to them. But if you noticed carefully, in both of those passages, they both talk about judgment. They both talk about God pouring out His vengeance on His enemies. And so Jesus is asking John to believe the truth of Scripture, even if he can't see the whole of it as being true in his own life yet. He's asking John to live between the already and the not yet, where some of this has come and been fulfilled, but not all of it yet. Isn't this, Christian, where you live today? And we sing songs about heaven, and praise God we should, and yet we haven't seen it yet. We get a foretaste when we sing together, and we fellowship together, and we see God move among us, but we're not there yet. And Jesus takes John to the scriptures, and he says, believe what is there. Believe it, even if not all of it has been fulfilled before your eyes. By referring to these passages, Jesus is telling John that God's justice hasn't been denied, it's just been delayed. So too, with the promises of God, we're so quick to doubt. We see a promise that doesn't seem like it's been kept in our lifetime, and we think that that means this promise has been denied, but what if it's merely delayed for a while? Can we believe in that moment? When Jesus speaks the comfort his doubting disciples, he takes them to the scriptures, and so too should we. When somebody comes to you with doubts, take them to the scriptures. Not in a trite sort of way. It's easy to do that. I remember early on in our marriage, my wife struggled a lot with doubt, especially doubting her salvation for several years. And I remember often at late nights with tears streaming down her face, just saying, just believe. It's a little bit like a drowning person, and you look at him and say, just swim. It's not very helpful. I meant well, I wanted to help her, 
but I didn't quite know how. So as we take doubting disciples to the scriptures for comfort, let's learn how to take them there well. Bring them to a place like the psalm that we opened our service with this morning, Psalm 13, where David cries out, How long, O Lord? How long will my enemies triumph over me? Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Consider me and answer me, O my God. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. Bring them to the scriptures. Doubters, if you're in this room and you're wrestling with doubt, let me challenge you. Go to people who will speak the scriptures to you. I guarantee you, you can find somebody on TikTok or YouTube that can talk to you about your doubts. Don't go to them. Don't go to them. Go to the one, go to the friend, go to the brother, go to the sister, go to the small group, go to the discipleship group, go to the elders that will minister the word of God to you. If you don't have relationships like that, dear friend, you need to lean in to God's church. Do not wait to find friends like that for when the troubles come. You need them now so that when the doubts arise, you know exactly where to go. This is why fellowship and community in the church is so crucial. And if I can also challenge the doubters in this room again, Stay in God's word yourself. Years ago, in 2011, I was going through probably one of the darkest periods of doubt I've ever faced in my Christian life. And took our family from Memphis to Louisville for a job interview. It was dark and dreary and snowy. And I went to the interview and this was for an entry-level position. I just, I was unemployed. I just needed something to provide for my family. And before I had even returned back to the hotel with my family, I had already received an email telling me that the position had been filled by somebody else. Drove all the way up, hundreds of miles, paid for a hotel with the little money that we had. I was broken. And as God would have it, in the Bible reading plan that I was going through, I was in Lamentations chapter 3 that morning. Lamentations chapter 3, if you read it, I encourage you to read it this afternoon when you have some time. This guy, Jeremiah the prophet, his life is rough. And the chapter begins and he's saying things like, God, it feels like you're making me grind my teeth on gravel. I mean, just... Meditate on that for a little bit. And he's saying these things to God. This is how I feel. Incredible doubt, incredible anguish in the soul. And then he says, but this I call to mind and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. And I vividly remember sitting in that hotel room, coming across the middle of Lamentations 3 and weeping. Dear doubting disciple, stay in the word of God and you never know what rich treasures he might unfold for you exactly when you need them.
Whatever the reason for your doubt, you can bring your doubts to Jesus because he gently cares for doubting disciples by speaking to them. Number three, Jesus challenges doubting disciples. Jesus challenges doubting disciples. There is a movement among some professing Christians today to celebrate doubt. To see doubt as a virtue. To paint doubt as humility. To say, well, I I couldn't possibly know for sure. Besides, what matters isn't what I believe, it's how I behave. There's a number of problems with this way of thinking. One is that Christianity is not first and foremost about our behavior. Listen, if this isn't true, all of us are doomed. Every other religion in the world begins with behavior. Christianity begins with belief. It's significant that Jesus says, the poor have had good news preached to them. He doesn't say good advice. Jesus didn't come to preach good advice to anybody. He came to preach good news. Good news about what? That you're a sinner. That God is holy. And that Jesus, in His incredible mercy, has come to this earth to live a sinless life and die on a death, a sinner's death. The wrath of God, as as Judy prayed so well this morning, poured out on Him in our place. That's news. It's not advice. It's news. He did that. And that, thanks be to God, three days later, He rose from the dead. That's what Christianity is about. And celebrating doubt in that is not a good thing. Doubt is not something to be celebrated. If you're a doubting disciple, hear me, Jesus will treat you tenderly, but He won't celebrate your doubt. He'll challenge you to forsake it. Look at verse 6. Blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Tell John, if he wants to be blessed by God, he cannot be offended by me. This is not the only place where Jesus challenges those who doubt. In Matthew 14, Jesus says to Peter, after he sinks into the water, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? Or in Mark chapter 11, Jesus says, have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. And Luke 24, after appearing to some of his followers, after his resurrection, he says, why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? Jesus will never cast off doubters, but he will encourage you to cast off your doubt. The word offended in Matthew 11 verse 6 literally means to be scandalized by something. Perhaps John isn't scandalized by Jesus yet, but if his doubts continue unchecked, he will grow into un- it will grow into unbelief. So Jesus challenges him 
don't be, don't be offended by me. Here's one of the things that was so helpful for me as I sought to care for my own wife in the throes of deep doubt. I can't remember where I heard it or read it, but the moment when she was completely overrun by doubt, just challenged her, just stop then. Stop following Jesus. Stop reading your Bible. Stop going to church. Just stop believing. You know what her response was? I can't. I can't. I said, why can't you? Because the Spirit of God lives within you. So cast off that doubt and cling to Him. Doubter in this room, wondering, do I really belong to Him? Try not following Him if you can. And if you belong to Him, you can't. You must continue to follow Jesus and in his article, we've referred to it already, but an article called When Doubt Becomes Unbelief, Alistair McGrath suggests there are three main ways that doubt turns into unbelief. Let's take his ways and turn them into three challenges for doubting disciples. Here's challenge number one. Don't be unrealistic about faith. We often doubt because we expect that faith means you're going to know everything with absolute certainty all the time. That's just not faith. It's not the way it works. In fact, in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, it says, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things what? Not seen. There is in faith by its very definition, there is this kind of you're out on a limb sort of deal. Where well, there's not absolute certainty. Not that Jesus is an absolute, absolutely trustworthy or his word isn't absolutely true, but there is always in faith something that you can't see. And if I could challenge the doubters in this room, don't be unrealistic about faith. Faith is always going to have parts to it that you just can't see. Even John had that. I think it's interesting that Jesus alluded to Isaiah 61, where it says the good, news are pre the good news is preached to the poor. The disciples go back to John the Baptist and they tell him that. And John, who surely had studied the prophet Isaiah over and over again, likely knew that in the very next verse, it says that the prisoners are released from prison. And you've got to wonder if John's thinking, well, what about that part, Jesus? And yet Jesus calls John to trust more than what his eyes can see. And so too he calls every single one of us. Don't be unrealistic about faith. Here's a second challenge. Don't be preoccupied with doubt. Doubt often turns to unbelief when we obsess with our doubts. You start to doubt and then you start to worry about your doubts and then it just spirals and spirals and spirals. Again, this is one reason why it's so important to open up about our doubts to Jesus and to his people. Don't be preoccupied with doubt. And number three, don't be content with immature faith. You're supposed to grow in your faith. 
It could be for some of us that we doubt because our faith hasn't been challenged and we need to grow in our faith. Don't be content with weak faith, Christian. G.K. Chesterton once said, A man was meant to be doubtful about himself, but undoubting about the truth. This has been exactly reversed. We're supposed to doubt ourselves and not doubt about the truth. And for many of us, we don't doubt ourselves at all. We're pretty confident, but we doubt the truth. That's immature faith. Don't be content with that. This is another reason why a church family is so important. That's where we grow. It's the greenhouse where God's people grow. Well, let me show you one final way that Jesus cares, gently cares for doubting disciples. He affirms them. Jesus affirms doubting disciples. He does not affirm doubt. He does not celebrate doubt. He confronts it. He challenges it. But he does affirm his disciples even when they doubt. Let me show it to you in verse 7. As they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. Jesus is saying here, John, John isn't doubting because he's a shaky, fickle, unreliable person. John's not doubting because he's a soft pushover who's unable to handle the pressure. Jesus continues in verse 9. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before you, before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Here Jesus is quoting Malachi, the last Old Testament prophet. Malachi says in chapter 3 and chapter 4, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. That's why Jesus says in verse 14 of chapter 11, all the prophets in the law prophesied until John, and if you're willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. I just love that about Jesus. Even though John is in prison, even though he's doubting, even though he's struggling, Jesus affirms him. He says, John the Baptist is a great man. He, he adds to that. He makes it abundantly clear in verse 11. He says, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has never arisen, or there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Do you hear what Jesus is saying? Jesus is saying, John the Baptist is the greatest person up to this point who has ever lived. He's saying that about a man in prison who's currently doubting. Why is John so great? Because of all of the prophets in the Old Testament who foretold the coming of the Messiah, only John the Baptist would be the one, the messenger who prepared the way for the Lord. Nobody had a greater job to do than that. Jesus says, nobody born of women is greater than him. 
You might be thinking, well, that's all well and good, but what about me? I'm no John the Baptist. I'm just me, and I'm doubting. Is there any hope for nobodies like me? Look at the second half of verse 11. Look at how Jesus affirms you, Christian. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. How can the least in the kingdom of heaven be greater than John the Baptist? Because even the least educated Christian in this room or on this planet understands more about Jesus than John did. John was doubting because he was waiting for God to pour out his judgment on his enemies. But if you're a Christian in this room, you understand that Jesus came to have God's judgment poured out on him. And so Jesus looks at you, doubting disciple, in your doubts, in your fear, in your anguish, and he says, you're greater than John, who, by the way, was greater than anybody else in the whole Old Testament. Do you see the incredible love of Jesus? He affirms you, not because you're so great, but because he is, but because of what he has done. So even as we Listen to those who doubt and speak God's word to doubters and challenge them to cast off their doubt. Let us also look for ways to affirm each other even when we doubt. Not for our doubts, but in our doubts. If you want an example of this, we saw this in our Sunday school class this morning from 2 Timothy chapter 1. Just read 2 Timothy chapter 1. Timothy is doubting and struggling and fearful, and Paul challenges him and affirms him. He says good things about Timothy. He says, I'm confident of your sincere faith. He says, you've received a gift from God. Stir it up. Paul affirmed Timothy because Jesus affirmed Paul when Paul had a thorn in the flesh and he cried out, take it away. And Jesus said to Paul, my grace is sufficient for you. For when you are weak, you are strong. Doubting disciple, you can bring your doubts to Jesus because he gently cares for you by affirming you. Not because of your doubt, but in the midst of your doubt. Well, I hope you've seen from our text this morning that Jesus is a good physician, that you can trust him with your doubts. But let me leave you with one parting thought this morning, Christian. Jesus is not merely the doctor, he's the medicine. He's the medicine. I think. Every single one of us, when we doubt, we're doubting either God's love or God's power. Why would this happen? Can you not do anything? Doubting is power. You can do something, but you won't, or you didn't, doubting his love. Here's what it looks like to take the medicine of Jesus in the midst of our sickness with doubt. Don't measure God's love for you by your circumstances. Measure it by the cross. Do you want to know how much God lo loves you? Don't look at what happened yesterday. Look at what happened 2,000 years ago on the cross. Don't measure His power based on your circumstances. 
If you're doubting God's power, don't think, well, why didn't you do this or that? Look at what he did in the empty tomb. There's where you see the power of God most clearly. If you're a doubting soul this morning, come to Jesus and find hope in him. And if you're an unbelieving soul this morning, come to Jesus and find life in him. Would you pray with me? Father, we